Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Let's read this. Um, I'll read this couple of verses for us, and then we're going to talk about it. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Here is what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we have, if you guys want to read it with me, that's perfect. Therefore, since we have a, high, a, gr- a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This last verse is absolutely one of my favorite verses in the scripture for me personally. So many times I just pray that verse. I just, Jesus, you promised grace to help in the time of need. And I tell you, this is a time of need right now. So let's just um, dig deeper into these three verses. Again, just to cap, to recap where we at in the process, uh, the author of Hebrews wrote his book to a Jewish background believer who were Jewish at some point, then became Christian, and now they wanted to abandon the Christian faith and go back to Judaism. So he's writing to them um, that Christ and Christianity is superior than Judaism, therefore don't abandon Christianity and Christ. In chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, the author of Hebrews argued that Jesus is superior to the prophets. From verse 4 of chapter 1 all the way till the end of chapter 2, Jesus is superior to the angels. Chapter 3 and 4, pretty much which we're closing today, the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is superior than Moses. He established his theological argument in chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Then he applied that um, from chapter verse 6 of, of chapter 3 all the way till the end of chapter 4 after he said that Jesus is superior to Moses he's saying that the followers of Jesus should be better than the followers of Moses so he quoted Psalm 95 how the first generation that was led by Moses disobeyed God and rejected him and he's drawing warning to his reader from that passage of Psalm 95 and tell them, hey, if, if the first generation did not obey God, let's not be like them. So um, he talked about that. We talked about the quotation of Psalm 95, the application of Psalm 95, and then the exhortation of Psalm 95, which we're discussing. Part of our um, discussion today is the exhortation of Psalm 95. He exhorted them to apply Psalm 95 negative, negatively and positively. Negatively by telling them not to be like the first generation. And that's the end of chapter 3. And throughout chapter 4 that we've been discussing now for four weeks. He's positively encouraging his readers to enter into God's rest. Which is taken from Psalm 95. By positively bringing four different reasons. Why should they strive to enter into God's rest? Verse 1 to 3a. Because the promise remains. Verse 3b to verse 10 of chapter 4, because the rest remains. And then verse 11 and 13, we talked about that last week, because the word of God is living and powerful, so don't ever think about disobeying it. And then today, he is encouraging his leader, his readers to enter into the rest, because we have a high priest who can sympathize, because we have such a, an amazing motivation in our great high priest, Therefore, we should strive to enter into God's rest. 
Now, verses 14 to 16 that we just read, kind of like transitional thought for the author of Hebrews. And when you read different commentators, different commentators put these three verses in different places. You can argue that he's here concluding the argument that we should strive to enter into the rest because of our high priest can sympathize with us. But in the same time, these three verses serves as an introduction to pretty much chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. For the next six chapters, for the most part, that is what the author of Hebrews is going to be talking about, give or take. He's going to be talking about how we have such a great high priest and that our high priest is far much greater than Aaron and even Melchizedek, the high priest of the Old Testament. Um, He's far greater than Aaron, the high priest of the Old Testament. So pretty much these three verses conclude the argument of chapter 3 and 4 and also launch the introduction to to the following six chapters, which is pretty much the bulk of the book of Hebrews. And we have seen that before. We have seen the author of Hebrews doing transitional thoughts before multiple times. When he finished his thoughts that Jesus is greater than the prophets and start talking about Jesus is being superior than the angels. Chapter 1 verse 4. Again, it's one of these verses that you don't know where to put it. Is he concluding the argument that Jesus is greater than the prophets? Or is he already talking about Jesus being greater than the angels? Remember that? When we said in chapter 1 verse 3, talking about Jesus being superior than the angels, that he by himself made an atonement for our sins, and then he risen up to be at the right hand of majesty. And then verse 4 saying, being far much greater than the angels, as much as he has inherited a more excellent name than theirs. And then he launched into the superiority of Christ over the angels. So again, he's, he's concluding the argument, and he's introducing another argument. We see the same thought process as well when he transitioned from Jesus being greater than the angels to Jesus being greater than Moses. Remember that? He concluded his thoughts about Jesus being greater than the angels by saying that his incarnation was temporary temporary, so that he can be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And then that faithful high priest is pretty much what launched chapter 3, how he is Moses also with faithful just like Jesus, but Jesus is far much greater than Moses. In little similar, there Jesus is still far more superior. So we've seen that. That's his style pretty much. Whenever he transitions from one major thought to another, he brings this one sentence or two sentences that kind of like concludes his previous argument and launch his new argument. And now he's launching his new, concluding the old argument and launching a new argument by start talking about our high priest. He's saying, we have such a great high priest, therefore let us strive to enter into God's rest. And then he spent the next six chapters talking about how great our high priest really is. In these three verses, um, I love one, one of the commentators, David McLeod. He, he, he highlights these three verses in three different points. He's saying that the author of Hebrews in verse 14 talks about the dignity of our high priest. In verse 15, he's talking about the sympathy of our high priest. And in verse 16, he's talking about the sufficiency of our high priest. The dignity, the sympathy, and the sufficiency of our high priest. Let's start with point number one, verse 14. 
He talks about the dignity of our high priest, who he really is. That's why he says in verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The author of Hebrews here tells us that our high priest is great for two reasons. It's great because of where he is. And number two, it's great because of who he is. Right? He's great because of where he is. He has passed through the heavens. And he's great because of who he is. He is Jesus, the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Number one, he's great because of where he is. In comparison to the Old Testament high priest. Remember, we talked about this in the Day of Atonement. Where the high priest will enter into the Holy of Holies, right? Behind the veil. Once a year to atone for himself and for the sins of the people. But where is that Holy of Holies that the high priest will enter into? Is it in heaven? No, it's just in the middle of the camp, right? It's right there in the middle of where the children of Israel resides. Jesus, our high priest, is unlike the high priest of the Old Testament. Amen? He did not enter into a place that was made by hands. He entered into heaven itself, into the very presence of God to atone for our sins. Amen? Amen. And the author of Hebrews talked about that throughout his book. In chapter 7, verse 26, he said this, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, and defiled, separated from sinners, and exalted, where? Above the heavens. Chapter 8, verse 1, We have such a high priest who is seated, where? At the right hand of the throne of majesty. Where is that? In the heavens. Again, in the heavens. Chapter 9, verse 24, we read this, For Christ has not entered into a holy place made with hands like the Old Testament high priest, which are copies of the true, uh, copies of the true things, but into where? Heaven itself now to appear into the presence of God, in the presence of God for us. And that's why our high priest is greater than the Old Testament high priest because of where he is. He didn't enter into earthly holy places into the presence of God in the tabernacle, he entered into heaven where the actual presence of God is. Amen? And that takes us back to what he really has been talking about before that, the Sabbath rest, where when people enter into that Sabbath rest, they will rest from their works the same way God rested from his work. And we say that this is pretty much talking about the believer who has labored in his ministry and now has finished and entered into God's rest, right? That now, when he says that Jesus, our high priest, entered into heavens, that takes us back to the same thing that he was just saying earlier, that we all going to eventually end where our high priest is. Amen? Amen? Jesus is a great high priest because of where he is, but he also a great high priest because of who he is. Amen? Amen. And the author of Hebrews defined him here as Jesus, the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Jesus is... The human name of Christ, right? That's his earthly human name. So he's saying the high priest is just like you and me. He's still human like you and me. Amen? But he is also the son of God. And we talked about this. The, the understanding of what the son of God, who the son of God is. And the author of Hebrews mindset is that he's somebody who's equal to God himself, right? In chapter 1, verse 3 to 4, he talked about who is that son. He said that he is the exact representation of the very essence of God. He is the radiance, the brightness of his glory. 
And he said about the sun later on in chapter 2. Your throne, O God, is forever and forever, right? And on and on and on we see that the author of Hebrews understands Jesus being the son of God as sometime who is equal to God himself in his nature. Amen? In other words, what the author of Hebrews is telling us here is this. Our high priest is great because of who he is. He's fully man and he's fully God in the same time. Amen? We have a great high priest because of where he is. And we have a great high priest because of who he is. Amen? And because we have such a great high priest, the author of Hebrews is encouraging his readers to do what? Let us hold tight. Let us cling to our confession. In the immediate context, it appears to be the word confession here is a reference to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? Right before that, he said, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. It might be that he's referring here to our confession that Jesus is the divine Son of the living God. But in the broader context, as we've seen multiple times throughout the book of Hebrews, he might be referring to the general Christian confession in uh, overall. Amen? Jesus is our high priest. He is the one who entered into heaven for us. So let us hold fast to our Christian faith. Let us not compromise. Let us not even consider going back to Judaism. Amen? And this is the dignity of our high priest. But number two, we have the sympathy of our high priest. And that's in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. I imagine when when the author of Hebrews was writing this book and it was being read to, to the readers or somebody's reading his book, And he said in verse 14 here, Therefore we have a great high priest who passed through the heaven. People were like, oh my goodness, what is this high priest going to do to me? He is far above the heavens and here I am living in misery on earth, being tempted, being persecuted, suffering. What good is that high priest for me, right? But the author of Hebrews is telling us this, and in spite of the fact that our high priest has passed through the heaven, yet he is very close to each one of us. Amen? So close indeed that he can even sympathize with every single weakness that we have ever experienced. Every single problem we've been through, every single single temptation, every single hard time, our high priest have been in the same place just like us. Amen? And that's why he used the word sympathize with us. And this is a very interesting word. In Greek, the word actually is, um, comes from two words together. And it really means to suffer with. It comes from son and then perseo. Son means with and then perseo means to suffer. So the word really means to suffer with. It is not somebody who's showing empathy it is somebody who's actually experiencing the exact same pain like the other person amen Amen. this word was mentioned twice in the whole new testament only used by the author of hebrews it was used here and it was used in hebrews 10 34 what does the author of hebrews say there he said this for you had compassion on me you sympathized with me 
in my bonds. How? And took joyfully that spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourself that you have in heaven better and enduring substance, inheritance. So the author of Hebrews is telling his readers, you sympathize with my own suffering because you yourself were also suffering. You guys understand that? So the idea here is not that somebody just feel the pain of other person while they're feeling good themselves. It's the idea here is somebody going through the exact same suffering like that person and feel the exact same pain that this person is going through. Amen? It's kind of like this. You get in a, like say, say somebody gets in a car accident and let's say I go to visit that person. I am well, I, I feel healthy, I have no problem. Yet when you go to the hospital, you can't help it but to feel bad and even pity for the person who's laying down in bed because they have broken their leg, right? You feel that you're sympathetic with that person. But this is not the sympathy that our high priest has for us. You guys are with me? The sympathy, the kind of sympathy that our high priest has for us is like this. When two people in a car, they get into a car accident and they both of them broke their legs. And then one of them laying in the hospital saying, oh my gosh, my leg hurts so bad. And the other person say, yes, I know I am experiencing the exact same pain like you are. You guys are with me? This is the kind of sympathy that the high priest, our high priest has for us. Amen. So when you go to Jesus, because there's somebody giving you hard time, Jesus will say, I know what it means because I have been there. Amen. When you have some sort of hard time, persecution, whatever the case is, you go to Jesus and say, Jesus, man, this hurts. Jesus say, yes, I know I have been there. I know the kind of pain that you are going through. Amen. And the only reason Jesus is able to sympathize because the Bible say here is that he was tempted in every point just like us. Amen. The reason he can sympathize is that because he has been there. You guys are with me? And that's what he already mentioned to us, the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. He said this, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers, brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And look at this, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those being tempted. You guys are with me? It's the same thought that the author of Hebrews mentioned before. Jesus is able to sympathize because he himself has suffered in the exact same manner. He knows what it means. He has been there. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. And he mentioned that again in chapter 5, right? That's probably going to be next week. It says this in chapter 5 verse 2 about Jesus, our high priest. This, he is able This is such an amazing verse. I didn't even notice it before when I was studying this time. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Since he himself is subject to weakness. Amen. He understands it. He understands. He knows the feeling. He knows the pain. He has been there. Even so, that if somebody make a bad decision and go away from Christ out of ignorance or out of stubbornness or out of sin, he understand the reason why they have been there. Because he was tempted in the exact same way. The only difference is he was without sin, yet we fall in sin. Amen? And if you look throughout the life of Christ, you're going to see that every single situation you've ever been through, Jesus has been through himself. Amen? Here he goes, son. Have you ever been tempted to compromise? 
you know, just give in a little and the reward will be great, right? Well, Jesus was tempted to compromise. In Matthew 4, 8 to 10, Satan came to him and said, If you just worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms and all these riches and all this glory. Now, Jesus could have reasoned with himself and said, Well, the word worship in Greek doesn't have necessarily to mean worship. It can mean just bow the knee, show respect, or something to that effect. And if I just do that, I will gain all these kingdoms, all these powers, all these riches. Jesus was tempted to compromise. Did he fail in that? No. But if you ever been tempted to compromise, well, Jesus knows what it means because he was tempted to compromise himself. Amen? Have you ever been tempted to sin because of a great need that you have? Well, Jesus has. And the same temptation in Matthew uh, 4, 2 to 4. Jesus got hungry because he fasted for 40 days. And Satan came to him and said, If you're the son of God, which he is, command these stones to be bread. Now, think about it. Hungry, never eaten for 40 days. If there is a time for Jesus to actually turn the stone into bread, this is the time. Amen? The need is as bad as it ever gets. And Jesus could have just given in. Yet he did not. Amen? And he said, you cannot tempt the Lord your God. It is written, it's only by the word of God that you can live, not by bread alone. So if you've ever been tempted to give up because of the great need that you have, and you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is hard. I need your help. Jesus said, I know what it means because I have been there. Amen? Have you ever been discriminated against? Have you ever been treated badly because you're black, because you're brown, because you're from this country or that country? Have you ever been discriminated against? Well, Jesus has. We read about that in John 1, 46. One of his potential disciples, Nathaniel, Philip came to him and he said, We found Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's the Messiah. And what does Nathaniel say? Can any good... Can anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Amen? He discriminated against Jesus because of where he's from. Have you ever been rejected by your own? Your mom and dad didn't like you much? Your own brother turned against you? Well, Jesus has. In John 7, 5, we read that his own physical brothers did not believe in him. In John 1, 11, we see that his own did not receive him. And in Mark 6, 4, 6 3, we see that his own town, a small town where he grew up, his own people were offended at him. They didn't believe him. Have you ever experienced the grief of losing somebody who's loved and dear to you? Well, Jesus has. In John chapter 11, we see that Jesus loved Lazarus. And what happened? Lazarus died. And Jesus goes, stands in front of the grave. And he's moved by emotions for the person that he loved who has passed on. And what would Jesus do? He weeps. So if you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I lost my friend, and it's really hurts. So Jesus say, I know what it means. I have been there. Amen? Have you ever experienced financial needs so bad? Well, Jesus has. He, one of his disciples came and said, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, well, foxes has holes and the birds of heaven have a, has, has a nest. But the son of man have no place to lay down his head. Jesus, in other words, saying, I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I'm homeless. I don't have a place to stay. Talking about financial need. Amen? Have you ever been abandoned? Those who say, we love you, we care about you, you're the best thing, and we keep on loving you, and then they turn their back against you and leave you. Well, Jesus has been abandoned at the cross. In Mark 14, 58, we see that every single disciple that he has invested in them for three years, every single one ran away from him. Amen? 
Have you ever, have people ever, have you ever been betrayed? Somebody you're dating and they betrayed you, they cheated on you. Have you ever been betrayed or cheated on? Well, Jesus has been betrayed. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who lived with him for three years, he turned against him and he sold him so cheap. It's not even worth the money. Have you ever, people ever made stuff about you? Just came up with stuff that is not even real. Well, Jesus has during his persecution. They were looking for false witnesses to make stuff up about Jesus so they can kill him. Have you ever been treated unjustly? We talked about this. Jesus was treated unjustly throughout his trials, throughout the cross. Seven trials Jesus went through. Every single one, he was treated unjustly. Have you ever felt that even God himself has abandoned you? Well, Jesus has. On the cross, he cried out to God and he said, My father, my father, why have you forsaken me. He felt that even God has abandoned you. My point is this. There is absolutely nothing that you have been through. There will be absolutely nothing that you will ever go through that Jesus has not experienced. Amen? So when you come to him, you can come with confidence because he has tasted, he has experienced every single weakness that you have ever experienced or will ever experience. Amen? Amen. The only difference though is this. Jesus is without sin. The point here is this. It's not that Jesus was not tempted to sin. You guys are with me? He was tempted to sin. The only difference is when he was tempted, he did not fall in sin. You guys are with me? So when you say, you know, Jesus is just perfect. He's the son of God. Sin never really enticed him. Well, actually sin did entice him. Satan tried to get him to sin multiple times. But Jesus refused to obey. So even the temptation of sin, Jesus himself has experienced. We read about this in Luke 4, 1 to 3. And I never noticed this before. When Satan came to tempt Jesus and gave him the three temptations, right? Turn the, bread into, uh, turn the stone to bread, jump from the uh, top of the temple, or give him all the kingdoms if he just worship him. I was thinking that this is the only temptations that Satan has against Jesus. This is the only ways that Satan tempted Jesus. And you can get that impression from Matthew. But if you read the exact same story in Luke, Luke has, uh, has a different uh, perspective on it. I'd never noticed before. So Luke 1, 1 to 3, 4, 1 to 3, we read this. That Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. Look at this. Being tempted by that devil. So for 40 days while Jesus was fasting, Satan was tempting Jesus throughout. All these 40 days, Satan was trying to get Jesus to sin. Every single day, he find a way to, do, to try to manipulate him or deceive him so he can fall in sin. And after the 40 days, we did this. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterward, after these 40 days of constant temptation by Satan, afterward, when they... These days have ended. He was hungry and the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. And we read about these three temptations afterward. You guys are with me? So Matthew and Luke highlighted these three temptations probably because they were the strongest. They were the most vicious temptations that Jesus experienced. But it doesn't mean that these are the only temptation that Jesus has experienced. Satan for 40 days and 40 nights was trying as hard as he possibly know how to get Jesus to fall in sin. And he failed. Amen? 
Jesus, our high priest, was tempted in every single way like you are. He sympathized with every single weakness you are. The only difference is he has never fallen in sin unlike you and me. Amen? So yet without sin is mainly exclusive in terms of the results of the temptation, not in terms of there is some temptation that Jesus never experienced. Amen? Jesus' weakness or sympathy with our weakness doesn't involve that he has moral weakness. You guys are with me? His weakness does not involve that Jesus has moral weakness. Jesus sympathizes with our weakness, but he does not sympathize with our sins. You guys are with me? Because he never really sinned, but he understands the temptation that led into sin. He understands every weakness we have, the hunger, the thirst, the, the tiredness, the, the, the deception of sin, whatever the temptation that tried to get you to fall away from God. Jesus has been through that temptation. Amen? I just love how David McLeod put it. He said, it is not the tree that falls, but the, tree, but the one that stands feels the full force of the hurricane. You guys are with me? This is just very good. It's not that Jesus was excluded from any temptation that he never experienced. He was suffering in every possible way like you and me. He just never disobeyed God. Amen? So we talked about the dignity of our high priest. We talked about the sympathy of our high priest. Now let's talk about the sufficiency of our high priest. Because we have such a great high priest, the author of Hebrews say, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Amen? Amen. Now, when he said, let us draw near. That might have been a shocker probably to his readers. Remember, there are people who were Jewish at some point, right? And in the Jewish mindset, nobody can enter into the Holy of Holies except who? Just one person, the high priest, one time a year, right? But the, but the author of Hebrews is saying here, let us all, every single one of us, in spite of our weakness and our sins, let us all draw near to the very throne of grace, to the very presence of God. Amen? Because our high priest is so great. He opened the door wide open to the presence of God. Not just for himself, but for every and each one of us in spite of our sins and our weakness. Let us draw near. Amen? And then it is amazing. In, in Greek, the word draw near is actually a present tense. The idea here is this. Let us again and again and again and again draw near to the throne of grace. Amen? The idea here is this. You fall once and then you come into the throne of grace with confidence. And then after God gives you the grace and the mercy that you need, then if you go out, you fall again, then guess what? Let us draw again into the throne of grace. It doesn't matter how many times you screw up. It doesn't matter how many times you fall in sin. It doesn't matter how bad you do it. You always have access with confidence to the very throne of grace because of who Jesus is. Amen? Let us Keep on drawing near into the throne of grace because we have such a great high priest. Amen? Amen. This is comforting to me and to you this morning, right? Let us draw near with confidence every single time in spite of how bad we mess it up and how many times we mess it up. Amen? Amen. But not just enter, let us draw near into the throne of grace, but we should do it with the confidence. We should do it boldly. The word confidence in Greek 
And in the, in the beginning, it was the idea of free speech. You just can say anything in your mind. You're not afraid with the results. And then evolved throughout history, the word, to mean boldness. To the, the absence of fear in speaking boldly. That's the idea. And then it became evolving more to like boldness and just cheerful courage. Nothing you should be afraid of. I think the best way I can understand this word is... When, when, I'm, when I had kids, I started understanding the word confidence more. I'll be like sitting down with Micah and Kezia and Seal and we're all eating. And then Micah will be sitting next to me. And somehow, all of a sudden, he just stretches his arm into my own plate and he grabs something on my plate and he eats it. Just no asking, nothing. He just stretches his hand to my plate, grab whatever I have and just eats it. And I'm like thinking, I, I start thinking about that. I was like, think about his perspective, why he's doing that. He, he's probably thinking to himself, you know, well, this is my daddy. He loves me. And I know this is his food, but I know he loves me enough that he won't mind. Therefore, he doesn't ask for permission. He just stretched out his hand right away into my plate. No manners, nothing. Just, you know, I know this is my daddy and this is his food. What's the big deal here? You guys are with me? It is just the, the assurance that he's not going to be rejected when he does that. It is the absolute boldness that when he does that, there's no punishment. There's no problem here because he is confident that daddy loves him enough to let him grab food of his own plate. You guys are with me? And this is the kind of confidence that we should have with God. I'm not condoning sin. I'm not telling you go, go sin as much as you want because God will always take you in. But what I'm saying is this. When you fall in sin, don't let Satan or the deception of the enemy or the lies portray this bad picture about God that he's angry with you. He's not. He loves you. And he's willing to take you back. And you should always enter with confidence into the very throne of grace of God. Amen? Not because you're a good person. Not because you got it right. It's because we have such a great high priest. Amen? It's because of Jesus. You can always go into the presence of God regardless of how bad you have messed it up. Amen? And every time you go there, you're going to find mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Amen? Amen. Now the throne of grace is, is the, we never see that terminology anywhere else in the New Testament. But it's probably a reference to the, um, to the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat that we talked about before when we discussed Shadows of Golgotha. Where, where, where the tabernacle, if you remember, it has the holy place. That's the first room. Remember that? And then there is the veil and then there is the Holy of Holies where the high priest entered once um, with the blood of an animal. And in the Holy of Holies, the very inner room, there is the Ark of the Covenant that is covered by the mercy seat. And when the high priest sprinkled the blood of the animal, the innocent animal on that mercy seat, the results of that, God will forgive his people. And out of that throne, grace and mercy will flow to the people of God who have sinned and have messed it up. You guys are with me? And that's the idea here. It is the throne of God. It's the throne of grace because out of it, because of our high priest, mercy and grace flow to the people of God in spite of the fact that they have sinned and they have messed it up. Amen? Amen. And I love this. That we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Mercy for your past sins. And grace to help for your present and future situations. Isn't that just awesome? 
If you have messed it up already, if you have already sinned against God, come today with confidence to the very throne of God and ask for mercy. And God, because of our great high priest, will forgive your sins and pardon it, and he will show you mercy. Amen? And if you're going through a hard time, or you're being tempted by Satan, or sin, or the world, or whatever, persecuted, whatever the situation is, you can come with confidence to the very throne of God because of our high priest, and you will find grace to help you. So you can pass the hard situation that you're going through. Amen? And I just love this. That time of need. The Greek literally means a well-timed grace. This is awesome. It's a well-timed grace. Amen? You might not feel it sometimes. You might not feel that God is answering you at the moment that you feel that you need that grace. But this is not a grace that will ever come late. Amen? This is a well-timed grace. Because God in His sovereignty will dispense that grace to you when you actually need it the most. Amen? This is not a a grace that will come late. This is not a grace when it comes when you don't need it. It's a well-timed grace. Amen? Isn't that awesome that we have such a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through heavens? Amen? Because of that high priest today, I just want to encourage every and each one of us to come and draw near to God. Our high priest can sympathize with our weakness, and he also can give us help. He doesn't just sympathize, he's also able to help. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence over and over and over again, regardless of what you have done. Have boldness that you can come into the very throne of God because of who Jesus is and because of who, what he has done for us. Amen? Amen. Let's close our eyes and pray.